If you've, um, if you've visiting today or if you're just getting back to church, we're in the Gospel of John. Last week we took a little break from the Gospel of John because just a message hit my heart that I, I chose to stop Gospel of John for a week and, and bring that to you. But it relates to what we're doing today. So I, I want to read to you the text we went through last week as a preparation for today. Um, so we talked about 2 Thessalonians chapters 1, verses 10 through 12 last week, because um, I'm teaching a class on Thursday night on the second coming of Christ, and this passage deals with that. But let me, let me um, reread this passage to set us up for today. So that is when Christ comes, okay, the ushers have Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, they'll bring you a Bible. So we're going to be in John chapter 2 as our text today. I'm starting here in 2 Thessalonians. Um, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Who are his saints? Okay. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. And that, right there, that idea of marveling at Christ. On that day, that we will be in awe, we will be in wonder, we will be in amazement. We will marvel at seeing our Savior to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this idea of we live our lives in a manner that Jesus Christ is glorified. And I would suggest to you that when he returns, and that idea of marveling at him, just this, this concept of when he returns, what overwhelms us is the wonder and beauty and amazing amazement of our Savior. I want that to capture us today in some small measure. That day will be amazing. But can we not have some small measure of it today, of marveling at our Savior? So in light of that in John chapter 2, I want to start with this. In this last year and a half, have you washed your hands more than you've ever washed your hands in your life? <laughs> For me, it started back in 2015. This is, part of my, this is part of my trauma in my life. In 2015, I, I, had got, I had a very serious bacterial infection that almost killed me, and Teresa stayed home to take care of me for six months, and after that, after that, she started a catering business. And so the catering business required her to go through tons of training, wash your hands constantly. And because I had that bacterial infection, wash your hands, Tony, wash your hands. Now she's a caterer. Every time I turned around, don't touch that till you wash your hands. I mean, it was, it was um, irritating. <laughs> but it prepared me for March of last year. Because then we upped the ante on washing our hands. And now it's gone beyond a good, just good advice to, to a form of, of a test of your character. You know, and I know I don't do politics from this pulpit, but our president recently sneezed in his hand and then shook hands. And he got beat up big time in, in, the, in the press for doing something that every one of us in this room have done. Every one of us have done it. Because now, all of a sudden, washing hands reflects your character. Well, that reflects on our passage today in John chapter 2. Jesus goes to a wedding, and he takes these pots for purification and turns the water into wine. Do you know what those pots for purification were used for, primarily? Washing your hands. 
the legalistic rules of the Pharisees. So let's, well, here's what I'm going to do. So, Janet, I'm going to read through the 11 verses first, so just to, so you don't get thrown off. I'm going to read John chapter 2, 1 through 11, then we're going to step back and walk through them. On the third day, there was a wedding, in, of Cana, wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the masters of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So there's our text for today. We're going to talk about the glory of Christ. His disciples saw his glory in that, in that miracle. This takes us back, as I've told you before, we're using John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, which is called the prologue. It's the introduction to the Gospel of John. In verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1, it introduces multiple themes to us that we're going to grab those themes and as we go through the Gospel of John and develop those themes. And so listen to John 1, 14. The slide is only going to be John 1, 14, but I decided to read 14 through 18, which we did a sermon on this about three weeks ago. But John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And by the way, who is the word according to John 1, 1? Jesus is the word, but John 1, 1 says the word was, he was with God and he was God. So now God has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, that's John the Baptist, and cried out, this is he, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. That's the preexistence of Christ. Christ existed in, as God before he became human. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a comparison now to Jesus' ministry and Moses' ministry. For no one has ever seen God. The only God is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Right there, I, I read the whole section to you because he's making a comparison to Moses' ministry in light of the glory. Did not Moses see the glory of God? See, Moses went up to the mountain and received the Ten Commandments. And he, his, he, when he came down, his face was shining. And he wore a veil over it to hide the glory. But the glory, according to 2 Corinthians 3, faded over time. Well, he didn't need the veil anymore. So now there's this, this comparison. By the way, had not Moses also seen God? Exodus 33, God's, Moses, I want to see, I want to see your glory, he says. And God says, you can't see my face, but I'll show you my back. And his back represented his mercy and his kindness. But Moses saw God in some way, 
and saw his glory. But now Christ is presented to us as the full glory of God. And in that strange statement, we talked about it two weeks ago, no one has ever seen God. Moses did. But Moses didn't see God in his fullness, in his true fullness. Only the Son has. And the Son has come to reveal him. So we're going to talk about this ministry of Christ today, of revealing the Father through his own glory. Jesus' glory does not fade. In fact, we're going to see today that it increases as time goes on through this gospel and in future, in that one day when he comes to be marveled at among his saints. I would suggest to you that marveling is a natural response to seeing the glory of God. So today I hope that we can open that door a little bit. Maybe that song we sang, open the window, let the light in. Maybe a little more light of the glory of Christ will come into our hearts today to where we see a glimpse of his marvelous nature and then we can glorify him. So let's look at this story of how the glory of Jesus revealed in the miracle at the wedding in Cana. I'm going to walk a few verses at a time and, and talk about this story. It's an interesting story. John is the only one that tells this story. And John also tells us this is the first miracle Jesus did in his ministry. So let's walk through it. Verses 1 and 2. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So first of all, weddings are big celebrations in Israel. Big. Seven days they last. Okay? People are invited. The whole communities are invited. Now it says here the wedding was in Cana of Galilee. Mary and her family, Mary raised her family in Nazareth, which there's, there's uncertainty. Scholars say either Cana was four miles north or, or, or nine miles north of, of, of um, Nazareth. They're uncertain today from archaeology exactly which town was Cana then. Nonetheless, Mary is introduced first. It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. By the way, John never calls her Mary. Matthew, Mark, and Luke call her Mary. John calls her the mother of Jesus. Never mentions her name. I, I don't know what to conclude from that. just thought I'd let you know that. But she, she's highlighted first. And Jesus also was invited along with his disciples. So it's possible that Mary, Mary may have some close relationship with the, the couple getting married. And, and by the way, if, if, if you're part of um, cultures that families gather for big celebrations, often there's multiple roles assigned to different people in the family, Right? Hello? Okay, it's possible Mary had a certain role at this wedding. That's why she's mentioned first, and that's why she talks to Jesus about the wine, possibly. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So th think, think, I'm surmising this, think of her role. Possibly now this is on her shoulders. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So let's talk about running out of wine first. Then we'll talk about Jesus' apparent terseness, even disrespect to his mother. Running out of wine was quite the social disaster. Wine was a huge part of Israel's life. And today, in some of our backgrounds, wine is nowhere in, not any part of our lives. In some of your backgrounds, it is. But in Israel, wine was the primary thing they drank with meals. 
Um, it, was, it typically was less alcohol than our wine today. The, 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 the fermenting process we have today is, has elevated the alcohol level. And but it was also possibly very strong wine in, in taste. And so it was often diluted with water when you drank it. But it still had alcohol in it. So, so I, I don't want to any thought that you know, Jesus made non-alcoholic wine. That, that's not what's going on here at all. All right, so... so for wine to run out is a disaster um, socially. Rules of hospitality required a sufficient wine supply for the whole seven days. You see, wine represents joy. Wine represents a celebration. And now all of a sudden, the wine is gone. It also represents a blessing. If we go back to Israel, we can see when God blesses Israel, guess what thrives? Vineyards thrive. And it's not for eating grapes. When God comes to bring discipline on Israel, guess what goes away? Vineyards go away because the blessing is removed. So part of the prediction of the Messiah coming is a blessing. And all the time, the blessings of the land and the fruit of the land, especially the vineyards, are going to thrive. So the Messiah has come. So he addresses his mother. Woman. How does he put it exactly? Woman. What does this have to do with me? Now, mom's in the group. If your adult son said that to you, those exact words when you asked him to do something, I see some heads going like this. What would you do? Be careful. <laughs> it appears to be a bit snarky, um, a little bit degrading, possibly. The phrase woman is, if I were to say to Teresa, woman, you, the tone of voice with it, uh, you know, I, I think I would wake up next week probably. Um, so, so, but Jesus at this time, it, it, it does not communicate that. Some of your translations will say, dear woman, showing you that this is not a term of disrespect. It is unique though, from my studies, this is the only time in Greek literature that a a son calls his mother woman as opposed to mother. At the cross of Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, his mother is standing there next to the author of this book, the Apostle John. And he says to her, woman, behold your son. Referring to John. And he says, John, behold your mother. In other words, I'm giving my mother to you to take care of her. So at the cross, he calls his same thing, woman. So it's not a sign of disrespect. But it is unique in Jesus addressing her this way. But the phrase, what does this have to do with me? It's a common phrase in the New Testament and in, he in the Hebrew Old Testament also. It's the idea of, I have no part of this. Don't involve me in this. Why? Because my hour has not yet come. So that phrase, my hour has not yet come, some of your translations will say, my time has not yet come, which, which is his point. But the word hour is, is, more, is more tense. It's more, it's more directed to a specific event coming up. And it's used, I, didn't think, I don't think I put it in here, it's used 26 times in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, my hour. So this, this is a common phrase in the Gospel of John to refer to his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. He said, at the end of John chapter 12, he says, my hour, the hour has come to glorify my Father. And in chapter 13, it mentions that as he moves now to the cross. 
So, mom, mother, woman, it's not time for me yet to show my glory. So that's what I think Jesus is saying. What does she say next? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's like, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to Mary or to my mother, but she didn't listen. And, and what does she assume is going to happen? What, what is she telling him to do? That this is the first miracle he does for, and we're going to learn it's just for the apostles, it's for his disciples. This is his first public miracle. Does she know he's a miracle worker? There's, there's, no, there's no evidence of Jesus doing miracles at home, you know. Um, um, what, what does Mary think Jesus is going to do? If, in fact, I'm surmising Mary has some role in this wedding where the wine may be part of her responsibility, son, we have a crisis. Would you help me solve this? Possibly. Or maybe Mary's fully aware of her son's miraculous abilities. I don't know. You guys can figure that one out. Um, I, I'm equally okay with either one. Has Jesus revealed his abilities before this public ministry day to his family privately? His brothers never believed in him until after the resurrection. So they didn't have an awareness of how wonderful their brother was. They probably just thought he was a perfect brat, you know, because they didn't sin a lot like he did, or they did. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So six stone water jars, that's important. John emphasizes the word stone, actually comes first in, in the phrase, which when, when a word comes first in a phrase in, in a Greek sentence, it, um, it, it emphasizes it. See, the Jews would have mostly clay pots that they put water in. And according to Leviticus, clay pots become unclean and can't be used again for ritual purposes. But this was stone. Stone pots did not become unclean. So they were of value. There's six of them sitting here that hold 20 to 30 gallons each. So how big would that be, you guys? About this high, you think? Think of a five-gallon bucket and make that four to six times bigger, you know. Um, for the Jewish rites of purification, primarily hand-washing. Can you imagine these were used at the beginning of the celebration probably to wash their hands? Now, hand-washing at this time, if, if we have in our culture possibly raised hand-washing to a level of it reveals your character whether you wash your hands or not, or I'll also look down on you if I see you sneeze and not wash your hands. If we've done that, even more so in this culture. All through Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees particularly, were on his case for the disciples not washing their hands before they ate. And understand here, it's not about germs. Do you know germs as we know them today weren't even discovered until about 150, 200 years ago? Did you know that? So this isn't about germs. But no doubt, if they're out working in the fields, their hands are filthy. Everyone kind of goes, yeah, I think I'll wash my hands. But washing your hands for purification was a much deeper symbol than simply your hands are dirty, before, wash them before you eat. It had to do with some intent of the heart to wash your hands. So when Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands before eating, the Pharisees picked on Jesus. They condemned his disciples. And what did Jesus say? He said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the man. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles the man. If someone eats with dirty hands, it doesn't defile them. It's what comes out of his heart that defiles him. And, and actually at that moment, that's John 7, where it says Jesus declares all food clean. So these pots represented a ritualistic rule that probably started with very good intention, but turned into a test of righteousness. 
you don't wash your hands at the proper time, it definitely reflects on your righteous character or the lack thereof. So Jesus takes these pots used for that purpose and turns them into a symbol of blessing. The Messiah has come and he's going to bless this group of people. 20 to 30 gallons each. How much wine is that? Somebody's already done the math. The Greek guy did the math. You like wine, Jim? No, you don't even drink, Jim. But you know your math. Tequila, okay, let's not go there. Um, This is 20 to 30 gallons per pot. It is between 50 to 75 cases of wine, 600 to 900 bottles of wine. That is a lot of wine. I mean, an incredible amount of wine. And this wasn't, and, and, and the, 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 the waiter, head waiter says, you, you, know, you, give, you drink the good wine first and then get the bad wine later. Not because everybody's toasted. Let's, let's not presume everyone's drunk here. All right? But, but here, here now a blessing comes. At the end of the ceremony, when the cheap wine comes out, the best wine they've ever drank, I'll presume, comes out. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. What's missing from this little narrative? The response of the bridegroom. His, his thought at that moment is not part of the story. So what, what do you think he was thinking? What are you talking about? You know, I'm, I'm sure he's thrilled that they didn't run they, if, if he knew they ran out of wine, he's thrilled they have more. But it leaves out his reaction to the best wine comes out later. Who was this for? Who was this miracle for? Verse 11, the purpose of this miracle. This The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So who knows about the miracle? The disciples and who else? The servers. They know about it. And the miracle is really interesting. There's no drama in it. Fill the water pots up. Fill them to the brim. Now take some out. And they pull out wine. So there's there's no... you know, dramatics on Jesus, you know, no waving his hands or, you know, I, I don't want to put any kind of sorcerer on Jesus. You know, he doesn't wave a wand, but he just said, fill him up and I pull it out. Water's turned to wine you know, but with, with minimal fanfare. Do you imagine the response of the disciples? If this was to reveal his glory, his disciples are going, who is this? Earlier in John, I just lost, the, I don't know if it's I think it's Philip told Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. We have found the one Moses told us was coming. A prophet from Galilee. And what does Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Galilee? That's like saying, can anything good come out of Winnemucca? <laughs> I, I used to live in Winnemucca, so we know that something can good come out. What could, could, yeah. uh, okay. Um, so, so they're, they're aware 
of at least, at least Thomas or, or Philip's opinion of Jesus. And Thomas is going, maybe, or, or Nathaniel is going, maybe. But now all of a sudden, there's this, whoa. He, he, he hardly even spoke a word. He says, fill it up, now pull it out, and it's wine. That doesn't happen. So this is the first of his signs. We're going to see in John, seven signs are done. Six of them are full miracles. One of them is, is not a miracle per se. It's still a sign that points to something. See, a sign points to something. And, and John doesn't usually use the word powers and miracles as much as he uses the word sign. All these things are pointing to something. What is it pointing to? Do you remember a theme verse for the Gospel of John? John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. After Jesus is raised from the dead, this is what John says. Now the disciples... No. Now Jesus did many signs. Start again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke for those. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does Christ mean? Messiah. It's the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, the purpose of these signs, of which the water to wine is the first, is to point to Jesus and say, he is our Messiah. He is, he's the one we've been waiting for. And he's the Son of God. And that by believing in him, I have eternal life, starting the moment I believe. So that moment, Jesus turned the water into wine. He revealed his glory. In John 1.14, the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. This is the first sign where the disciples got to see the glory of Christ. And like I said, it's not that some halo was around his head. It wasn't, you know, uh, the clouds parted and the sun shone on him. But something about the symbolism of taking vessels that were designed for a legalistic ritual and turning it into the symbol of God's blessing in our lives, wine, the fruit of the vine, they realize this is the Messiah. I've seen something of his glory just right now. This sign secured the foundational belief for them that they needed that he was the Messiah. It's very important. At some point in life, we come to the place where we realize God is real. He has a son named Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me, was buried and rose again, who's ascended to the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for me, and I'm trusting in him. At some point in life, we all have to do that. Some of you raised in Christian homes, you believe in Jesus since all your memory. But at some point as you grew up as into to teens and a young adulthood, you had to come to a place that that is what I believe. I'm hanging my hat on it. For me and some others of you, there's, you were a full adult before you even had a concept, understood the concept. But what about today, when hard times hit? Do you sometimes have doubts? Is God really there? Is this whole Christianity thing true? Is, if God is there, is he really good? Do you know how much pain is in my life? If my God's good, why do I have all this pain? I've been there, have you been there? There's certain things for me when that happens I do a lot of reading. I like to read books that would suggest our faith is wrong. Sometimes reading them, I go, gosh, maybe this is true. 
How many of you were here when Sean McDowell, how many of you came to the Sean McDowell conference? Sean McDowell started for 40 minutes, he put some glasses on, called them his atheist glasses. And he put those glasses on and he tried to get the Christians in the audience to tell him why he should be a Christian. Why, is, why do you believe Christianity is true? And he refuted it from an atheist perspective and did an amazing job. To where you kind of go, oh, gosh, maybe atheism is true. What is that foundational thing in your life that when those doubts come, you say, those doubts are real in my heart right now, in my mind. I realize people hold them to be true and think my faith is stupid. But for me, I always run back to, and we're gonna see this in the Gospel of John, John chapter six, when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and many of his disciples left him. And he looks at the 12 and says, are you gonna leave too? And what does Peter say? Where are we gonna go? Only you have the words of life. Doesn't mean they didn't have doubts. Doesn't mean they weren't struggling with what Jesus said. They realized there's nowhere to go. And that's where I end up in those times of doubt and struggles. What's the other options? I have a faith system revealed here that's lasted thousands of years, that there's this good, almighty, holy God that created us and we turned our backs on him. So he pursued us to win us back by sending his son to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it makes total sense of the world when I look at it. To believe in this God of the Bible, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, makes sense of the world around me. So when I have my doubts, that's my foundational belief I go back to. And then it just keeps building. And if I get knocked down, I go back to that foundational belief. Where else do I have to go? I wonder if this miracle here functions in the same way. As he's now going to take them, he just did this miracle for them. He's now going to take them through his life and through his death and his burial and then ultimately the resurrection and these guys are going to abandon him at the cross and they're going to be hiding in a locked room wondering what in the world happened just now. This miracle would serve as burned in their hearts and minds but we saw him turn water to wine. We know who he is. So I will filter all my doubts and all my experiences through the truth that I know to be true. So that's what this story does for me. They saw his glory. Now the idea of glory is, is mentioned dozens of times in the Gospel of John. In fact, it mentions the glory of Jesus way more in this Gospel than all the other Gospels put together. It's a theme of the Gospel of John. So let's look at the glory of Jesus in the remainder of John's gospel. And then we will participate in his glory through communion. So after completing, the, so these seven signs that John teaches us are in God, from chapter 2 to 11. The culmination is Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Then after that, there's the march to the cross. Okay, so the signs all happen early on. Some of the scholars call it the book of signs, and then afterwards call it the book of glory. It's how they separate the gospel of John. But John 12, 23, Jesus answered them. He's, he's talking to his disciples after he's done all his signs, and Jesus, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. This, the, 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 the Pharisees have determined we're going to kill this man. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's turning his face to the cross now, where his glory be revealed through the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. A few verses later, he gives some explanation of how Jesus will be glorified. So don't miss this. In 1232, Jesus says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What is he referring to, lifted up? His, his crucifixion. When he's lifted up, it's against his will. And he is lifted up, and he's going through the most shameful death he could possibly go through in the Roman world. But he says, I will draw all people to myself. This is a direct reference again back to Moses. In the book of Numbers, one of the things that God sent to the Israelites because of their rebellion was snakes, serpents. And so Moses made a brass serpent he put on a pole, and he stuck it in the ground, and every time the Israelites got bitten by the, the, the poisonous serpents, what were they supposed to do? Look to the pole. And when they looked at the brass serpent on the pole, they wouldn't die. That is a precursor. That's a sign that points to Jesus being lifted up. And all who look to him will be saved. If I be lifted up, I draw all men to myself. So back to our 2 Thessalonians passage, that when Jesus comes, he'll be marveled at among those who have believed. He drew us to himself, and our job is to marvel at him. Listen to John 17. John 17 is a prayer of Jesus the night before he is... He'd just gone through communion and the foot washing. Now he's praying before he gets arrested. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him, and this is eternal life. Do you have this eternal life? This is it. This is how he defines eternal life. That you... May, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is reduced down, do you know the Savior? Do you have a relationship with him? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Look at that last phrase. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. Do it with me. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus existed with God for eternity in that glory. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 say that Jesus was in the form of God, but humbled himself, emptied himself to become a man. What did he empty himself of? This is the only thing we have in Scripture that tells us that he asked for something back. Jesus emptied himself of his glory. If Jesus came in all his glory as God, we wouldn't have crucified him. We'd have fallen down on our faces. He emptied himself of his glory. So how is he going to get his glory back? Through the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension to the Father, as it says there. Give me the glorify me in your own presence. Jesus wants that glory back. This is our little sidebar here. We did a whole sermon on Jesus as God. Listen to Isaiah 48, 11. Isaiah here is talking about the foolishness of idols. And in this, in this context, he has said a half a dozen times, there's only one God, it's me. Only one God, it's me. Then Isaiah says this to Israel. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. 
For how shall my name be profaned? They profaned it by worshiping idols. My glory I will not give to another. God doesn't share his glory. What's Jesus asking for? For him to share it. So therefore, who is Jesus? He is the God of Isaiah, which we'll see in chapter 12, full-blown, and chapter 8. I can't wait. (sighs) The glory of seeing Jesus do miracles is nothing of what is to come. Later in John chapter 17, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So whatever glory they glimpsed in the water to wine, whatever glory they're going to glimpse in this life, whatever glory you and I glimpse now is a shadow of what we'll see on that day when we were with, are with Jesus. And I know it's an old song, it's relatively speaking. Um, I can only imagine that song, when, when, when the, the writer talks about his dad dying and seeing Jesus, that's the context, and he says, what, what will I do? Will I stand before you, Jesus? Will I dance before you? Or will I fall on my knees? I think that's what we're going to do. I think there will be an overwhelming sense of glory that we hit the ground when we see the fullness of his glory. We experience some of that today. The wine into water is the first glimpse of his glory he revealed to his disciples. So in light of that, I want to reread to you once again our passage from last week's message. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, the 2 Thessalonians 1.10, and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Have you believed? A little more excitement. He will come on a day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled about at among all who have believed. Let's do some of that marveling right now with communion. Father, we thank you. Thank you for, for me, Father. I thank you for your patience with me. As I blunder sometimes through life, as I get arrogant, and you have to take me down a notch or two. Thank you for the humility you bring to all of us, the patience you have with us when we turn our backs on you, the forgiveness you have and the cleansing that comes with that forgiveness. Father, you're amazing. We thank you, Lord, that this plan of yours, which, which we wouldn't have written, we'd have written it to where we accomplished it, but you came to those who you created who were dead in their sins, and you opened our eyes You opened our hearts. You made us alive. You showed us the beauty of your son. And now, Lord, we want to honor you with hearts that are right, hands that are clean, as we remember what your son has done for us through communion. So, thank you, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. If the ushers could come forward.